Hello, and welcome to episode 105 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. This week is our third installment of the Tennis Abstract book club. Uh, in previous book club episodes, we've talked about the Gordon Forbes memoir, um, A Handful of Summers, as well as the John Updike novel, Couple. So you can listen to those in our extensive back catalog. But today we're talking about Arthur Ashe's memoir and final book of several called Days of Grace from 1993. And since it was his last book of three, it wasn't so much about his tennis career, although there was a little bit about the career. There was some about his uh, his several year spell as a Davis Cup coach, but a lot of it was about his activism, his life off the court, his um, the decisions involved in pursuing post-playing career activities, as well as, of course, his AIDS diagnosis and the um, the press storm that rose around that, and just a lot of a lot of current events for the late '80s, early '90s in America as concerned him. So, Carl, let's start with the tennis part. You know, I figure some of you listening to the Tennis Abstract podcast probably care a little bit about that. And uh, you mentioned before we started recording something about Ash describing himself as a player. He described himself as an entertainer, someone who made bad, bad decisions sometimes, who wasn't always thinking through all of his all of his moves. That seems a little bit out of step with what else Ash tells us about himself. He's a, he's a very measured guy, very careful... Uh, very thoughtful off the court, but it sounds like he was not on the court. Do you have any any idea how to make sense of that? Well, it definitely made me want to watch more of Ash, the tennis player, and 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 understand more about him, the tennis player, just because in this book and in so many other ways, we, we hear about him more after his career and outside of his playing. The, the main thing I had known about him was from, well, I'd read Levels of the Game by John McPhee, and there he is described as being more loose and free, certainly relative to Clark Grabner, um, his opponent in the match that's being written about in the book. But I, I also have read a lot about the 1975 Wimbledon final against Jimmy Connors when, you know, Ash was seen as, as making this masterful tactical decision to be much less aggressive than he usually is and not give Connors much pace and dink the ball. Um, and that that impression of of him as an underdog beating one of the all-time greats with with his mind seemed to not square so much with how ash himself you know seemed to see himself uh you know one possibility is that he's holding himself to an incredibly high standard which he seems to do in all other walks of life and and maybe he you know is comparing himself to like rod laver who he mentions a few times in the book as someone who dominated him and had had a much greater career uh, maybe he's also just being really smart about this as he seems to be about a lot of things and recognizing that ultimately when playing their sport, great athletes are entertainers and that, that is, you know, an important part of their function is to provide something surprising and exciting, even if it's not the best thing for their chances of winning. And, you know, some tennis players who have done that in recent years have, have gotten some grief for it, but have also gotten a lot of fans and a lot of interest in the sport. And, and maybe Ash was, was being savvy in that way as well. He certainly accumulated a lot of endorsements and money and connections by, by becoming a very, very famous 
uh, player, and some of that was because he was incredibly successful, but maybe some of it was also that he played in a in a very entertaining way. Yeah, and I have watched a few of Ash's full matches. There are some that you can find on YouTube and other places like that, including that 1975 Wimbledon final. And I'm not sure I entirely see it. He was certainly entertaining, and he was very good. He was a servant volleyer, and unlike the few servant volleyers who remain today, like the that meant coming in all the time. I mean, pretty much behind every serve, maybe not every second serve, but a lot of second serves. It meant coming in behind returns. It meant like if there was a way into the net, you came into the net, period. And a lot of guys did that in that era. And it, it's a high-risk strategy. I mean, it, it's not even so much about personality. It's as soon as you commit to that strategy, you're taking a lot of risks and you're probably doing it to the point that you're not always taking smart risks so it is interesting that he sets himself apart like if i'm not sure whether he ever wrote about this in in more of a technical sense in the way i'd like to hear about it but you know one thing i would have loved to be able to ask him is if he thought he was more entertaining or more risky or less thoughtful than other guys who were serving volleying as much as he was since it is so fundamental to that style of play yeah it's it it did. Some of what he was describing sounded like, well, that's what a net player would do. They'd have to make in, instinctive decisions on low percentage balls and, and go for wild angles and spins. And, and sometimes it wouldn't work. And, and that wouldn't make the overall strategy a bad one, even if on individual shots or individual points, it might look low percentage. Um, I, he seemed to be describing something else. But again, I come back to he seemed so hard. like it seemed like it would have been very hard as Arthur Ashe to live with Arthur Ashe inside your brain like it just holding himself and other people to such high standards uh, which produced a lot of excellence on and off the court but uh, could mean that if he's summing up his career years after retiring this is the sort of thing he's thinking about although he also you know speaks with great admiration about John McEnroe who uh, took you know, was incredibly creative, had a lot of flair, and also did a lot of low percentage things, probably won fewer uh, majors than, well, I think we've talked about this, is seen perhaps as having won fewer majors than, than he could have. But on the other hand, Ash has like incredible admiration for him and, and in, you know, is sort of hypnotized watching him on court. So uh, it could say more about Ash's mentality than about anything that's an outlier about his game. It's interesting that you bring up McEnroe. There is a chapter in Days of Grace about Ash's time as the Davis Cup captain, and a lot of the story of Ash as Davis Cup captain is Ash handling McEnroe. I mean, McEnroe was always there. He was very committed to Davis Cup, but he was a tough person to get along with and a tough person to coach to the extent that he didn't really want coaching, even from someone of the stature of Arthur Ashe. But it's interesting to get the perspective on McEnroe from the end of his playing career as opposed to what we have now. Because Ash was, at least by the time this book was written, Ash was one of the grand old men of the game. He he represented a lot of companies as a uh, as a spokesperson or as part of their business, and he was in a position to hear from from executives about McEnroe, and they told him that they wouldn't touch him with a ten foot foot pole. He was too controversial. Um, he didn't represent what they their companies wanted to put out into the world, and. I mean, you can see that. I mean, that's not a foreign perspective to how people think about McEnroe today. He's still controversial. He still says things not everyone would want to associate with. But he's sort of become one of the grand statements, if, state, statesmen, if an eccentric one. 
and it's um it's interesting to see how that tr- how how that trend works. Like I've, I've noticed in the past that players, as they get older, seem to appeal to a broader range of people. I don't know if that's going to happen with Nick Kyrgios, but you can look at someone like Leighton Hewitt, who went from very very controversial, somewhat unpopular as a young player, to become more and more of the grand old man of the tour status. And Andre Agassi's done the same thing. And yeah, you wonder how much that goes along with the personality. Like, can can you separate the high risk tennis player from the like neurotic off the court guy who's tough to associate with? This all felt like it was leading up to a question, but I don't really have one. So, Carl, I'm hoping you have some thoughts on the issues I've raised. Yeah, I have a few. I, I think I think it's a great point. I mean, one of the things you and I talked about before we started recording is is just the tragic and simple fact that. Arthur Ashe barely outlived this book. He, he finished the manuscript less than a week before he died per Wikipedia. And so, you know, he would be of an age today that is is younger than many of the elder statesmen of the sport. Uh, and so, who know, you know, maybe he as as revered as it sounds like he was in his life. We know how revered he is now, but maybe he he would be. I mean, he was talking about a potential political career, which seems plausible and he he could have followed Bill Bradley, who we mentioned several times in the book, who went on to the U.S. Senate. Uh, who knows what this this sort of change in how we regard people with age would would have done with Ash? I think he's out of step in '93 with some of today's politics around race in the U.S. But he could have evolved in several directions there. Um, uh, evolved. He could have gone in several directions, or he could have stayed who he was, but you know, carried so much gravitas given his career and, and his writings. Um, so, so you know, maybe if, if McEnroe is is so much more esteemed today, maybe Ash would have been as well. And, and we'll just never know. There's a a line from the very end of Hamilton: uh, "All the other founding fathers get get to grow old." And in tennis, you've got you know all the other greats um, who who pretty much are alive and well. I I remember hearing when ATP was celebrating its history of the rankings that all the players who had ever been ranked number one were still alive and, and Ash topped out, at least in the ATP rankings, at at number two. So, yeah, I think that's part of it potentially is just staying alive and, and staying involved. And, and a part of it is not playing anymore for high stakes. Like some players have a persona on court even when they're playing uh, for the biggest prizes that seems to expand their their fan base and their earning potential and their their broader fame and love in the world thinking of Federer and Nadal um, and uh, you know I think some people loved the sort of iciness of Steffi Graf and Bjorn Borg and then I think for some players it potentially hurts them the way that they express themselves on court and how they they release the tension of such an incredibly tense environment uh, at times Serena Williams, uh, Andy Murray, Novak Djokovic, I think all of them could potentially be much, much more popular than they already are, which is very popular uh, in retirement if they stick with the game. And instead of having the incredibly high stakes of playing for the biggest titles, they're commentating or coaching or something else or, or being the commissioner of a unified tennis world or whatever. Um, so I think there may be some of that with with McEnroe. Uh, that uh, really, once you don't have to see his antics, which could just be, you know, bullying to people who are much less powerful than him on the court, uh, he could be a, a much more liked and respected part of tennis. 
It's interesting that you put it that way because I, I think a lot of that is true that as as players are off the court, then it's it's harder for them to be controversial. It's easier for them to be to to sort of slide into the grand old man or woman kind of status. But McEnroe has hung on to his career as a player like maybe no one else in tennis history, right? I mean, not only did he play doubles for a long time, but he's been the face of the of the senior tour. I mean, he, he's how old is John McEnroe now? He's 60. Um, and he's he's still playing senior tennis, isn't he? I don't know what the state of the status of the senior tour is uh, in, in the time of COVID, but he he's a regular feature in those and he, he he makes jokes about the you know you cannot be serious fighting with the lines people so to some extent like he's able to he's able to make that kind of compromise where he can be a, a more broadly appealing person but still like still embody the controversial person he was back when his new fans didn't like him much at all yeah, I I was trying to thread a needle there and imply that while he is still playing, it's not for anything that he takes that seriously. He takes everything seriously, and and that's part of the uh, what makes him John Macro. But I I've seen enough of those matches to think that he's he's he wants to win, but he wants to win a lot less than he used to, and that he's a lot more in on the joke, and that he's performing. John McEnroe circa 1980 or whatever um, more than he's he's channeling it and, and he recognizes that that's his role and that nobody's actually like intimidated or afraid of it in the way that, that they could have been reasonably before but maybe I'm being generous or maybe maybe I'm just you know because I'm not taking those tournaments very seriously assuming that he isn't yeah and certainly isn't taking them as seriously boy uh, talking about this I'm, I'm thinking what would make a fantastic book I mean there, there's this writer that some of you are probably familiar with named, um, I hope I get his name right, Scoop Malinowski, who's written a series of books with names like Facing Federer, Facing Serena, and so on, where he interviews other players about the, the topic of the book and what it was like to stand across the court from them. And I mean, Facing McEnroe would be interesting, no question, but I would love a book called like Watching McEnroe that is, that is about the evolution of how tennis fans felt about John McEnroe, because it's, it's really run the gamut. I mean, from the, the absolute most negative possible responses to the absolute most positive. And this all took place in a, a relatively short period of time. I mean, a lot of it just in 10 or 15 years of, of his career. And um, we veered tremendously off topic of our Arthur Ashe book. Um, but I'm sure we'll have other opportunities to read about John McEnroe in the future, hopefully by people other than than McEnroe. And you mentioned, Carl, in, in something you said a few minutes ago that Ash is revered, that he might be revered, revered more if he was still alive, if he'd been pursuing his various activities for the last three additional decades. Uh, I mean, do you think that he is sufficiently remembered or revered now? I mean, we, there's, a, there's a building named after him that's pretty central in the tennis world, but you don't hear his name a lot. So, I mean, is it enough? Whew. Um, I mean, I live in the, <laughs> I live near the building named after him in New York. So it's like very present in my mind. And I, I, I think about it all the time and see it from various places, but that's not the norm for the, for the tennis world. So is he outside of the, you know, biggest stadium in the sport and, and one that has often not been beloved by spectators, uh, 
it, you know, is his name out there enough? Do we re remember him enough? I... I think probably we tennis should be paying homage to him more, but it is kind of a complicated, you know, it is a story interrupted. He was in the middle of, of so many projects. Uh, I think the, the, and also so much of what he was, was passionate about was, was outside of tennis. Um, he was though, you know, I think two things that came through in the book that I hadn't fully appreciated about him before um, which is partly my ignorance, but partly as someone who's followed the sport pretty closely and, and does live in, in the home of, of the U.S. Open, uh, where, where he was a champion, uh, reflects maybe like how little he's talked about in these, in these broader terms uh, than, than what we know about him most, most on the surface. He was a very crucial figure in, in getting, you know, m making tennis professional and getting money to players and, and the starting of the ATP. And he was also this this important, really important figure in tennis in South Africa. I'd heard some of that before, but you know, using sport as a way to to try to push for change and uh, getting linked up with Nelson Mandela and you know, forcing the issue of playing in tournaments where normally a, a black man from outside the country would would never even be allowed in. Uh, he was he was very deliberate and passionate about about that issue and um, really used his his position in a in a strategic way. So I, those two come to mind. And then the Davis Cup stuff. I mean, I hadn't I, I knew that the U.S. used to be much more successful. I'd heard about some of the matches, but I hadn't really focused on how long he'd been leading the team and, and how many titles they'd won with him and. Uh, just what a volatile time he he went through and kind of got through with McEnroe and Connors will he or won't he drama around the team. So just just from a tennis perspective, I think there's a lot more to him that that could get him a lot more mention and, and attention. And then all the stuff he did outside of tennis as well, which which I hope we'll talk about some too. Um, you know, really was impressive and um, maybe not as well known as it should be. I mean, he really came across to me as one of the great heroes of the sport of the last, I don't know, of ever. Well, that's it's interesting that he, everything you just said is something that is something that is impressive, something that very few people have accomplished, something that that we should honor him for. And only only in passing sort of is race mentioned like you obviously in order to to make the sort of change uh that he wanted to make in south africa i mean it had to be a black man to open those doors and he took advantage of his position and he he fought really hard with some personal sacrifice to make that happen um we can go through that whole list and make ash sound like a tremendous guy without talking about the fact that he pretty much broke the color barrier in men's tennis. I mean, not literally. There were black players who played in, in U.S. tournaments before Arthur Ashe. Uh, and, of course, Althea Gibson won majors before Arthur Ashe came along. So if there's a Jackie Robinson in tennis, it's it's Althea Gibson. It's not Arthur Ashe. But, you know, I, we're having this conversation on April 15th, which is Jackie Robinson Day across Major League Baseball. And whenever I think about 
how tennis could honor Althea Gibson or Arthur Ashe, that's that's the benchmark that I think about. And there are all sorts of reasons why you can't compare the two directly. The first one of which is simply that tennis is a global sport. So Arthur Ashe and Althea Gibson are not as important to Romanian players as they are to American players. That's just that's just how things are and probably how they always will be. But that still means that there's a big segment of the of world tennis that should care a lot about these people simply for their pioneering roles, not to mention how much Arthur Ashe did after his playing career and I mean, how great they were as players. Um, but that that's where it seems like, like you don't even have to make a complicated case with a lot of points to say he was the first, the sport is so much better and different because he did what he did. Full stop. I mean, honor this dude more. I mean, it's, it, do you think there's a, there's a way to do that? Or maybe you think I'm off base in, in making that argument. I mean, is there a way for the, the global tennis community to show more respect for the, the people who broke these barriers? Um, I like, I like that answer, Carl. It's like the, wow, that is, there's not only so many potholes in my answering this question. It's also really, really hard. So I'm going to, I, I, I'm not, I, I'm not wor- as worried about potholes as maybe I should be. I, I, I think I was just thinking, practically speaking, so I've, I've come back a few times to there's a giant stadium named for him. And then I was thinking, like, what what else? Does, so they could name a tournament for him, I guess. You know, so much of what tennis does well is based on the assumption that these players are alive and well and up for traveling to major tournaments. And at those tournaments, they play the Legends events and they... They're, they're shown in the stands and they, they hop on TV commentary and they're, they're living, breathing parts of the sport. And, you know, then everyone can kind of genuflect to them. So Billie Jean King is a great example. And Ash, by the way, pays tribute to her repeatedly in the book as being the most important figure since World War II in tennis. He, he seems to put Connor second, and I was curious why Laver wasn't in there. But anyway... He he clearly had enormous respect for Billie Jean King, and it seems like everyone does, and she she has accomplished a ton, and she kind of absorbs that in person all the time, and there are so many opportunities for her to be honored, and that's great, and I'm glad, and I mean, she really struggled and suffered at times during her career, and so it's it's due and overdue, and tennis just like isn't as set up for the people who you know, based on when they were born and how vital and, and healthy and strong they were and, and becoming great champions are just not with us anymore. And and Ash is, I think, the most glaring example of it. I guess there are some players who are alive, but, you know, choose not to kind of be part of the of the traveling tennis world. But uh, well, Bjorn Borg for a long time. Yeah, that's true. Um, but, but even Borg has started showing up to things and, you know, played some of the legend stuff. And it's just, you know, with, with Arthur, I think the closest, sometimes what you see, including with Jackie Robinson is surviving family members. And I think that at times has happened with that, with the Ash family. Uh, and I don't know if there's maybe some tension or they're not, they're just not being invited as much as they should be, or they're not interested, but that would be one, uh, potential way that that the sport could kind of continuously be be telling the Arthur Ashe story 
um, beyond just sort of naming buildings and, and abstract ideas for the forum. Yeah, I guess that to me, the problem that needs to be solved is most tennis fans, the only the only time they'll engage with tennis is watching the sport. I mean, it sounds like a really obvious thing, and it is. And if you're a baseball fan, if you watch a game tonight, April 15th, 2021, you'll see every single player with a 42 on their back. Uh, there's probably a ceremony in every Major League Baseball stadium today. Commentators will talk about it. You cannot avoid it. <laughs> and if you don't want to hear about it, I'll bet that's pretty awkward. Fortunately, I think by this point, most people do. Most people embrace it. And with with tennis and Arthur Ashe, you could come back at me and say, well, baseball has Jackie Robinson Day. Tennis has Arthur Ashe Kids Day. The Saturday, two days before the first day of the U.S. Open, the biggest thing happening in tennis in the world is Arthur Ashe Kids Day. And I think it's even on TV now to some extent with some exhibitions and stuff like that. I don't think it was until a couple of years ago. So that seems to be the gap to me that... And I don't know, I don't know how you bridge that gap of taking the tennis fan who watches tennis and like reminding them. I mean, it's not even that. It, sometimes this this can be phrased in sort of a combative way, where you're sort of forcing them to take to sit up and pay attention. I don't even think about it that way. It's just it's just a reminder to say like we have what we have now because of the sacrifices certain people make. And as you say, Carl, with with Billie Jean. It, she's around a lot. So we're reminded she's interviewed in commentary boxes. She's, she's on good morning America. Like we hear from Billie Jean pretty often for the people we can't hear from anymore. Like Arthur Ashe, somebody else needs to make the effort. And there just isn't a really natural way to slot that in. And, and, and maybe, maybe there needs to be, maybe there needs to be a way of adjusting broadcasts to like acknowledge Arthur and acknowledge other people when more of tennis's greats have passed away. I, I don't know what the solution is, but it, it, to me, it seems like a big gap. I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I just think of everything in baseball terms and I'm limited that way and what, what tennis should do, but that that's where I'm at with the issue. You mentioned race and how it hardly came up in my litany of his tennis related, uh, off court achievements. I, he he had a complicated he speaks in the book about his kind of complicated relationship with the civil rights movement in the US and how he um wasn't really sure when when was the right time for him to speak up and what to say and how to kind of get in the mix with people he saw more as as firebrands or potentially going too far and that South Africa was in a way a, a much easier issue for him because it was so I'm not going to say black and white, but it was so clear what what the uh, what the wrong was that was being done to blacks under apartheid, and um, that it wasn't his own country. So it was like easier for him to uh, to get involved without his own complicated history. Um, do you think that maybe that has had some effect on? how he's seen you mentioned that he's not quite the Jackie Robinson of tennis but he did break barriers and uh and yet he's he's not often spoken of in in the same way it's an interesting question I don't think that's that's the case in part because Jackie Robinson was complicated with with race issues as well and this would get us really far off track but I mean just to to give a a taste of what we're talking about here, both Jackie Robinson and Arthur Ashe occasionally voted Republican. I mean, it doesn't mean quite the same thing that it means today, but I mean, that's sort of the one sentence summary of 
like you can't just say I I'm on board with this set of beliefs therefore Arthur Ashe is my hero it's a little bit more complicated than that it's a little more more complicated than that with Jackie Robinson too but that doesn't that doesn't stop people from embracing Jackie Robinson for his role in in, in breaking the barrier in baseball so so I don't I don't think that's it but it it is it's tough. I mean, I'm thinking about the the people who who could be more embraced, like the like the Olympic sprinters. I think it was who who kneeled for the anthem in the night at the Mexico City Olympics. Um, I mean, you hear their names a lot, but they're not. They, they raise their fists, right? They raise right. They raise their fists exactly. Um, they're revered for for that action, but I don't think as individuals they're they're held up as as heroes, they're not held up not as heroes, but they're to a lot of people they're forgotten. They're 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 largely a historical footnote. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure what makes someone s- stick out in history. I mean, to some extent, it's that Jackie Robinson was Jackie Robinson for all sports. Like every sport has someone breaking the barriers, but all the barriers became easier to push down once Jackie Robinson had done it, and once baseball had started uh, integrating further. So. So it wasn't as big a step societally, um, but I'm 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 not sure. It, it's it it's a it's a complicated thing to come to terms with. I'm sure people smarter than me, a lot more knowledgeable than me, have written about it and tried to to make sense of it all. But I I don't have a good answer. Um, let's see, what else should we talk about? What is, this is pretty closely related. Um, if Arthur Ashe were around. He, you talked about how some of his his positions were uh, would be maybe controversial now or would be out of step. I think you said now um, had Arthur Ashe lived for three more decades and he were around now, people would be asking him about Black Lives Matter, about police brutality, about all the stuff in the news right now. I mean, he was very engaged with whatever the the biggest stories in the news were, race or not. Um, what do you think Arthur Ashe would be doing now? Ooh. <laughs> the the thing I'm confident of is that he would be talking to a lot of people with a lot of different views and backgrounds, listening to a lot of people, reading the news, absorbing a lot, thinking really hard and being very careful about what he said while trying to maintain a respectful uh, relationship with just about everyone on all sides of the issue. Um, and he would probably thread the needle pretty well and come up with something that would add to the conversation and, and on balance, make the world better. What that would actually be. I mean, I think that he was, he was such a believer in capitalism and in, um, and in sort of the potential for the system to improve and heal itself. And, also in, in people's personal responsibility. So I think that, you know, one thing that was really striking in the book was how not only was he a believer that black Americans had a lot of personal responsibility for some of the uh, societal ills they were dealing with, but that it, it saddened him and even somewhat enraged him that that people were not taking more responsibility and, and doing more to improve themselves in their communities, even as he also recognized and, and repeated often in the book how destructive racism was, the legacy of slavery, uh, how I, I think he said at one point it was it was harder for him. It, it was 
it, it caused him more pain or suffering, I think, to have been born black than to have had AIDS. Was that, am I getting that right? Yep. And, you know, he knew when he said it that, that it was going to potentially be very controversial, but he meant it in terms of not anything inherent about being born black, but the way the world treats someone who's born black. And I, I, I think that he would be reluctant to bring together thousands of incidents around the country and put them all under one umbrella and say all of these are unjust and because of race, uh, but that he would look for all possible steps that, you know, wealthy corporations and wealthy friends could could do to push the issue um, that, you know, friends in government could do to, uh, you know, especially to, I think, reform systems that allow dangerous and bad police officers to remain on the job and, and a danger to their communities. I think he would he, he would be quite uh, outraged by, you know, people who are bad at their jobs, especially in a way that endangered others um, being allowed to, to keep their jobs and there being some kind of impunity in the system. I am speculating wildly about what a man who's been dead 28 <laughs> years would say. So, I, I mean, it's uh, let me just caveat all of that by saying I really have no idea and all sorts of things could have happened to him in the meantime. But that that is my best guess, because one thing that comes across in the book is that he was kind of always Arthur Ashe. Like during his life, he wasn't there weren't wild swings in how he approached problems and, and how he thought about things. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting distinction I think you're making there between between issues that are demanding some kind of radical structural change and issues that are demanding that the laws be enforced equally. And I, you can say there's a, there's a conservative element to the latter. I mean, people who are self-identified conservatives don't always line up behind those issues, but they're philosophically consistent that if, if Arthur Ashe is, you know, protesting in favor of, um, of immigrants from Haiti, for instance, the argument there was the government was sending people back to Haiti because they were perceived as economic immigrants, while people who were escaping Cuba to come to Florida were perceived as um, seeking political asylum. And Arthur says in the book, it, that might be mostly true of people come from Haiti. They might, in fact, be economic immigrants, and maybe, according to the law, those people should go back. Um, but what he was protesting for was the automatic blanket treatment of all of those immigrants as economic immigrants and thus being sent back when the law said they, they should have been giving, given a hearing. So Arthur generally wasn't saying, like, we need to remake society from the ground up. He was saying these laws exist. Let's enforce them fairly. And it it makes sense for someone who comes from something of a middle class background, who was always very responsible, brought up among people who expected like extreme integrity and responsibility. Like those are the rules that led him to win. Like he just needed to be let into the tournaments uh, as he should have been. He could take it from there. So what he wanted for everyone else was was a fair shake. And that often doesn't mean any kind of radical transformation. It just means enforcing the rules that are already there. So again, like I am, I'm doing exactly what you just said you did, Carl, and, and speculating wildly based on, on uh, positions that were held 30 years ago in a very different world. But it, it seems like there's some logic to that. So uh, that, uh, you can draw a line from where he was 30 years ago to, to where he could be now in a somewhat logical way. 
While we're speculating wildly, I mean, I think, as you said, led him into the tournaments, which his hometown of Richmond and Virginia often didn't when he was growing up, uh, led him into the tournaments and he'll he'll do the rest. And, you know, just <laughs> thinking about players, including McEnroe and Connors, getting outraged at at umpires and line judges because their view of tennis justice is slightly being misapplied in some minor way at one moment in a match and you realize like what a high standard tennis players have and and tennis has for for the rules being enforced and and the clear lines and everything else and they pretty much get that they pretty much get justice once they're on the court there's all kinds of inequities outside the court um and and maybe you know being able to spend your career your professional career in a an arena like that uh gives you more more confidence not not only is is there a high standard but it's very transparent and uh you know you can you can argue against the injustices when they do emerge uh and i don't know if if like a certain personality is drawn to that kind of sport or um if the um the sport changes people and it's not like everyone in tennis has the temperament of Arthur Ashe. Although, you know, James Blake, another, maybe the next prominent black American men's tennis player, uh, I think has a lot in common temperamentally with Arthur Ashe, wrote a book that was a tribute to Ashe and other black American sports figures. Uh, and maybe the sport just just lends itself more to that kind of of activism and and views on justice yeah and i think it is a a check chicken and the egg sort of issue like certainly some people are going to be drawn to tennis because it has the rules that it has uh but at least some people seem to think that it works the other way too and that's something that i i talked about a little bit with katrina adams a couple of episodes ago is she's very involved with the Harlem Junior Tennis and Education Program. And, and I, I think I'm summarizing her belief correctly that like being involved in tennis, it doesn't even have to be tennis, but tennis is good for this role, um, is is a good way to to get people thinking more like that. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure I can even specify exactly what that is, but it, thinking in terms of personal responsibility and following the rules, like, Tennis gives you a, a world where all of that happens. Uh, you don't have to fight for it all the time. You can you, you get pretty much what you what you put in. You get pretty much what you can expect out of it. Um, and it it does seem to benefit people as sort of a, as a youth program in certain communities, and that that's why people like Katrina are so involved in uh, in working with kids around tennis, even if it isn't just about tennis, but making tennis a, a big part of their programs. Uh, okay, radical segue here. I want to talk about the very first uh, chapter of the book, which was a super, super newsworthy thing back in the early 90s. It's not something that it, we think about much today, even when we're thinking about Arthur Ashe. He, he did have AIDS. He ultimately died of the complications of AIDS. He, for those of you who don't know, um, he had... I think two heart attacks or, or uh, two heart surgeries, rather, one in 1979, another one in 83 or so. And 
in the second heart surgery, he got a blood transfusion. That's how he got HIV and ultimately um, he got full-blown AIDS a few years later. He, he discovered he had it. He kept it under wraps for for many years. He stayed very active for all of those years up until the end of his life. He wanted to keep it secret outside of his his medical support staff and, and family and friends. And almost everyone honored that for a very long time until one day close to the end of his life when... Um, when USA Today found out about it, they sought his confirmation and basically said that we're going to have to publish this. You are a public figure. Um, the world deserves to know that this public figure has AIDS. And it was, I mean, AIDS is still not uh, not without controversy. It's, there's, there's plenty of um, negative associations that come with being diagnosed with it. Uh, but it was uh, much worse, I think, 30 years ago. He fought very hard on the, the perspective that he was a private citizen. He was no longer a, a superstar tennis player like he once was. Therefore, USA Today nor anyone else should have the right to publish these details about his medical history. And of course, it did come out. He took charge of the situation and held a press conference, announced that he was HIV positive and had full-blown AIDS. And then, of course, took a leading role in the fight against the disease and continues to have his name associated with it to this day. But Carl, I know you've you've probably thought a lot more about journalistic ethics sort of issues than I have. And I wonder what you think about that decision to to publish the diagnosis and whether whether that would be treated differently now than it was in the early 1990s. Yeah, I. <laughs> Sorry, I guess I'm doing that a lot in this, in this episode. <laughs> there are a lot of hard questions raised by by the book, and and he doesn't shy away from them, and he also does not shy away from giving the alternative view. And he, I think he's, I, I may have sounded at times like I found him to be somewhat rigid, or I said he was he was suffering by having himself in his head because he does hold people to really high standards, but he's also incredibly empathetic. And he actually like gives a really good perspective of why a journalist might might be doing this. And, and he himself wrote for the Washington Post, I think, and, and appeared as a commentator. So he had some connections to journalism. Frank DeFord was a good friend. I think he got it, but also I think he was probably right in being opposed just because he wasn't really a, he wasn't a politician. He wasn't an elected official. He wasn't, um, an active uh, athlete in in the sense of potentially other players having some some fears, although in tennis it would make a lot less sense than in in basketball, and that's a non-contact sport. Um, he th- there really wasn't any reason other than just AIDS is important and he's important and it's like important to know someone important has it uh, that really justifies violating somebody's medical privacy and i think maybe today it wouldn't have it wouldn't happen uh in the same way it also occurred to me that it was probably going to come out at some point and i think there's kind of that undercurrent in that chapter and especially after when you know how soon after he ended up dying of aids or complications from aids that the the details of how it came out how it was prompted by a journalist, what, how he dealt with it, all that were to some extent details and that probably this was inevitable one way or another. Um, and maybe it would have come out in, in a less pleasant way, like maybe eventually 
Arthur circle, it would have leaked out to the next circle out and it would have just become common knowledge. Someone would have blurted it out, whatever. So this did give him a way to control it. But that doesn't really, to me, justify the decision of a, of a journalistic outfit that, that they would go, that they ought to go ahead and, and publish this information. What did you think? Yeah, I, I, I also see the, the both sides of the issue, and I struggle to think of a, of a contemporary parallel. Because um, in retrospect, it seems like it, it was beneficial that it was published because it, it, it's sort of outed him to slightly misuse the word. And by outing Arthur Ashe, he became an instrumental figure in the fight against age, which probably had... Uh, had more benefits than harms, although it's tough to, to weigh like societal benefits versus personal harms. So I don't know. It, it seems like ethically, yeah, it probably probably shouldn't have been published. But then it's it, if there is a contemporary parallel, it never would have made it this long, right? Like it, it, he, he says that his condition was common knowledge among um, among hospital workers around the New York area. Uh, there were a fair number of family and friends who knew about it. So it's, it's tough to imagine now, like it, it's, it's staying under the radar so long. Somebody would have leaked it. At, at least the rumors would have been out. Like maybe it wouldn't have been leaked to the New York Times, but it would have been leaked online and people would have all known like, yeah, we've noticed Arthur's looking, he's looking weaker. It's what they say about AIDS is probably true. It would have been out there even if it hadn't been, sort of given the official premature of USA Today or the New York Times or something like that. Um, I also thought it was interesting that it was the first chapter of the book. Uh, it's it's sort of a weird, maybe weird is the wrong word. I'll say it's, it's, it's a weird thing about making public statements that I always think about what I, what I heard once as, a, as advice to comedians, that if you are a comedian and there's something funny about the way you look or unusual about the way you look, you have to come out on stage and acknowledge it. Like everyone's thinking about it. So, you know, if you're overweight, you got to make a joke about being overweight. If you've got a giant mole on your face, you got to make a joke about the mole. Just get it out there. Let people like tell people that you know to and move on. Only then can you move on. And it kind of felt like that's what this chapter was. I mean, it is an important issue, but compared to some of the other stuff in this book, um, it felt like he just kind of needed to clear the air and say, I know this is what you're thinking about. I know this is the number one thing I've been in the news for in the last year. Therefore, we need to get it out of our system before I can talk about this other important stuff. And I'm, I'm curious if you got that feeling as well, Carl, that like this, that he just needed to get this out to move on to what he really wanted to write about. Yeah, I mean, he, he comes back to... AIDS and healthcare, and he clearly cares deeply about healthcare. And some of that goes back to the the heart attacks that you mentioned, and just like spending way <laughs> a really long part of his too short post tennis career uh, dealing with with major health problems. Um, but yeah, I, I think that there there was an element of that, and maybe there was also an element of him knowing that a lot of the book reads like he's aware that he doesn't have much more time. Sometimes he sounds more hopeful, sometimes less, maybe depending on how he, he felt during the period he was writing that passage. But just generally that, that that is sort of like the first chapter of a very grim kind of countdown that he um, 
is is using to to motivate like getting out all of these really important ideas that he wants to share with the world and, and share with his daughter as well so this is very much a memoir um and i am not a big fan of memoirs i really rarely seek out memoirs to read uh unless it's someone that i really respect or i'm really interested in both of which are true in this case I would almost always pick a biography written by someone else, as in this case I did. There's a, a, an excellent long biography written by Raymond Arsenault that came out, I think, two years ago now. Um, I, I would generally recommend that book to everyone with the caveat that it is quite long and quite detailed. Uh, if you don't think you're interested in six or 700 pages of Arthur Ashe, then you won't want to read the whole thing. But it, it's very well done. And it, the reason why I tend to vote biography instead of voting memoir is I like the third party perspective. And in, in this case, a lot of what's in this book, at least the subject matter was in Arsenault's book as well. And uh, Arthur's comments about a lot of things were in the book as well. So, so you don't lose a lot by going the biography route, at least in this case. But I, I'm curious, Carl, do you, do you feel the same way in this debate? Or do you think that there's, there's much to be gained in reading ash directly rather than getting it filtered through a third party that hopefully has a little more more perspective on it mm. i mean th this did have a sort of co-writer or or ghostwriter but it's still ash's book and it's still yeah it doesn't have that distance you know the other thing that you get in, in this particular case where it's in the last year of his life is it's, it's this snapshot and that's fascinating. And I'm sure it was very useful for the 700 page biography to have that snapshot, but you know, it's, it's what was on his mind and what was in the world in that very specific time as it happens, partly because he died so young. So many of the people he names are still relevant in tennis and outside of tennis. Um, but it is, you know, a very specific moment, whereas writing decades later does give you that, that broader perspective and you can see where the things he started were heading. I think for Ash in particular, the memoir format worked pretty well for me. I, you say this is very much a memoir and it was in that it was from his perspective. It, it was more like issue-based, like that was the theme of chapters than during this period I did this and during this period I did that. And I just found the way he thought about things and, and approached things compelling and, and his, his writing or co-writing to be really effective. So I liked being with him in a way that you get much closer than, than in, with that third party perspective. Uh, so even though I, I think I generally agree in this case, it, it worked pretty well for me now, some chapters more than others have you ever read any of a hard road to glory no uh so that's his three volume work on with with, with a team uh, helping him on uh the history of black athletes in the u.s right yes and it, if, if it were available on kindle i probably would have read it by now but the thought of getting it shipped to norway from probably somewhere in the u.s seems a little bit daunting at this point um but yeah, it, 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 in the in the Arsenal book, it, it was mentioned that reviewers did not embrace that book. It ended up selling very well, partly because of Arthur Ashe's name. Um, but one of the main complaints was that the the prose was not terribly graceful. Uh, 
I mean, it, it, it didn't read that well. I mean, it sounds like an important historical document and you don't have to know too much about it to know that it is like that a lot of the, the figures in early African-American sports history, there was very little written about them before he, he embarked this um, upon this very big, very expensive long-term project. Um, but it sounds like it wasn't super readable. And I do wonder how much his co-authors were involved in managing the prose of his various memoirs he had very good co-authors i think for all three of his his memoirs i don't remember who the first two were but i remember thinking they were uh they they were all good journalists who would have done a lot to to increase the readability so it's it's interesting that you highlight that because it even even with the co-author this book did feel a little bit turgid i guess uh, to me at times but not i mean not enough to stop me from from continuing on but it wasn't the I mean, it's not Andre Agassi's memoir. Let's put it that way. That's sort of the the pinnacle of tennis memoir writing, and it, it it's a far cry from that. Um, but it, you're right. I think it does let you get inside his head more than a third party biography does. So, this is not a graceful segue at all. But you mentioned earlier his time as Davis Cup captain. We didn't talk about that too much. And an interesting thing about his time as Davis Cup captain was. He became captain right about the time that the Davis Cup transitioned to the 16-team the world group format from a much more complicated format that involved many more ties. So the format that everyone really wants to have back right now that just disappeared a few years ago or a couple years ago even, uh, that came into play right when Arthur Ashe arrived as captain. And it seemed like he embraced it, right? I mean, he he was happy about the, the schedule being simplified, the number of ties necessary to be played was going down. And it's so interesting to read that someone talking about, yes, the Davis Cup is changing for the better, when right now, anybody talking about Davis Cup changing is probably saying, oh, those bastards ruined it for everybody. It's never going to be the same thing again. And I wonder, Carl, do you think, do you think that that change in circa 1980? was actually for the better and or should should we be more open to changing the format now yeah i was really struck not just by how it was received but also yeah that thing that we're like mourning isn't that old and it's it's certainly far from the first time davis cup has changed format and so maybe that's okay i i think that what it changed to then was was a good fit for the interest level of top players at the time in participating. Connors, as a very infrequent and apathetic participant, was still somewhat of an outlier. And when you you read some of the names that Ash is dropping of of who's playing in those ties, um, I mean, some of the countries the U.S. was playing did not have any top players. But when when they did, they tended to, to be in the mix. And uh, it was still, you know, a challenge, and the captain had to work hard to get everyone on the team and in, in, in place. But uh, I think it it worked then, and it made sense to reconsider more recently. I, I'm not saying that I love the the new format; or that was definitely the right decision. But the idea that maybe you should change it as the interest level in the in the competition changes seems like a a solid one to me. 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting, again, going back to what I learned in the Arsenault book, that when Arthur Ashe was first to Davis Cupper, it was a totally different world. And of course, this is the amateur era, but the idea of the team, it actually really meant something. Like, if you were on the Davis Cup team, that was a lot of your identity as a player, to the extent that like, if you look at old Australian Open draws from the 60s, you'll often see a contingent of American players, like often four or five top Americans, and then not a lot of other other American players or other uh, foreign players. And that was the Davis Cup team. They decided, like, we're going to, to travel together, we're going to play these tournaments, and then we'll be ready for this tie we have against Australia. And that faded away pretty quickly with the professional era. But to think that Arthur Ashe went from that in the mid 60s to the sort of hodgepodge between that and the modern format in the 70s to what he ended up captaining in the 80s is it's a really dramatic change um it's striking to hear about it from from all the different perspectives uh okay you mentioned billy jean king a couple times i want to talk about billy jean king and there's a famous line billy jean once said that she was blacker than arthur and Arthur Ashe, he, he talks about that a couple times in the book. He seems to both disagree with it and understand where it's coming from. But we've talked about Billie Jean a few times. We're going to talk about her more since she's got her own memoir coming out this summer. But to me, she seems a little bit inscrutable. That obviously she's this tremendously important figure, very influential um, players and coaches. Everyone's talking about how great she is all the time. And I don't have any reason to disagree with them. But... She's, she's not as much of a public figure as other public tennis figures in the sense that she doesn't say a lot. She's, she doesn't seem to be publicly at the forefront of a lot of change. Uh, she's involved with it. She knows everyone. It seems like she does a lot behind the scenes. And I'm wondering what you think uh, about the distinction between what we know about how Arthur Ashe went about things, about his way of making change, and, and how that compares to the way Billie Jean goes about doing things. Yeah, I wonder if to some extent she ended up incorporating more of his approach and just realizing that, you know, having, you know, exerting power by by remaining on good terms with so many people in the sport and powerful people outside the sport was was the most effective way to to function and to continue, you know, being able to kind of get what you want out of the sport. Um, And, you know, some of that could just be aging, being around different people, just uh, being less close to the to the action. But um, I, I think your observation is right, that while she has this reputation for being kind of a radical activist, that her um, what she's doing today seems more in the in the mold of of Ash. It's interesting. One one anecdote from Katrina Adams's book is it's it, it helped me understand better how Billie Jean does what she does and why she's so beloved by so many people in the tennis world. That she's been a mentor to Katrina Adams for many years, and Katrina mentions once she she took on the job of uh, president of the USTA. Uh, Billie Jean King invited her out for lunch and sat her down and basically said, what's next? Like, what, what are you planning for after this? And it's, it, you do get this sense of Billie Jean King as, uh, as sort of the, the brain behind the scenes. She's sort of moving her pawns around to eventually accomplish everything she, she wants to accomplish without necessarily being in the limelight herself. Of course, she, she is in the limelight in some ways, but 
um, she has all these all these allies, many of whom we probably don't even know about, and she's operating in a very different way than than the way she did in the seventies. So, Carl, before we officially wrap this one up, do you have any other questions or thoughts about Arthur Ashe and Days of Grace? Well, I think a a lot of what he says about healthcare and a little of what he says about AIDS resonate with with COVID. And, you know, when I said there are a lot of names that are familiar still today, either because we still know about them or because they're still very much active today, uh, Anthony Fauci is cited on, on AIDS. And uh, we know now that, you know, he made his name there. But, um, you know, I think that, that Ash felt like there should be, you know, healthcare for all in the U.S. He also was on the board of Aetna. And, you know that and and seemed to believe deeply in the work he was doing there and and that kind of sums up his his world view uh and and some of the potential contradictions that maybe he would have been spending the last 28 years resolving and i really wish we we had that alternate reality yeah that is that is one of the sad things about reading this book is like it's one thing to to read a book like this by someone at the end of his life and with the perspective that that brings and with everything that happened in his life. But then every once in a while, there's these reminders that, yeah, he was 49 years old when he died, which is just, it's, it's devastating. It doesn't bear a lot of thinking about, um, at least without being followed by a lot of depression. So on that not very happy note, I think we can, we can recommend this book. I'll, like I said, if you're like me and you prefer biographies, I would point people to that Raymond Arsenault biography called Arthur Ashe, A Life. Uh, if you're going to read one book about him, I would pick that unless you're scared away by the 700 pages. Um, Carl, would you uh, uh, do you feel like this is something you'll recommend to others? I haven't read the Arsenault book, so I, I wouldn't be comparing it. But yeah, I would recommend it, but know that it's maybe 15% tennis. Is that about right? Yeah, it's not a lot of tennis. I guess we haven't really acknowledged that too much, but for a book by a tennis legend, it's not much tennis at all. Yeah, he had a lot of other things on his mind in 92, 93. So if you want Arthur Ashe, the tennis career, there are a couple of earlier memoirs that I haven't read. Carl, I don't think you've read either. No. Uh, so we can't speak to those, but hey, if you've, if you do read them, let us know what you think, and maybe we'll follow up on, on those eventually. So this has been, like I said, the third installment of the, the book club. Um, we're at a bit of a crossroads with the book club because, as far as we can tell, not a ton of you are really embracing the concept. Um, we're enjoying it, and I love reading about tennis, so there's those positives. But compared to other episodes we do, um, it's not the most popular thing. So if you are enjoying it, and you'd like us to keep doing it, please say something and then we'll know. It doesn't take a lot. Not a lot of people respond to podcasts um, compared to the thousands who are listening. So um, your voice will be disproportionately powerful if you do choose to let us know what you think. And if you like it, but think it should be better or different, please tell us that too. Let us know what you'd like to hear about these books that we're not currently giving you. So in that vein, like I say, feedback, 
welcome, please. Uh, we're going to do at least one more, and we're going to switch gears to a contemporary novel called Sudden Death by Alvaro Enrique, who's a Mexican novelist. Uh, the book was published in 2013 in Spanish and the tr English translation in 2016. I'll read the blurb. It's a daring kaleidoscopic novel about the clash of empires and ideas in the 16th century that continue to reverberate throughout modernity, a story unlike anything you've read before. Now, that doesn't sound like tennis, but... Sudden death begins with a brutal tennis match that could decide the fate of the world. So basically the 1975 Wimbledon final again, as far as I can tell. Uh, but it sounds fun. It sounds weird. Two of my favorite things about novels. So I'm looking forward to reading this one and we'll probably recap in a month or a little bit more. We're not 100% sure about that since the tennis calendar is ramping up hard with uh, Roland Garris about six weeks away. But that's the, that's the plan, and I'll post a little bit more about that on the Tennis Abstract blog. So, Carl, thank you for reading along with me and joining me for this discussion. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been episode 105 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. You can find all of our past episodes at podcast.tennisabstract.com. And you can also listen to me talk about tennis every single day, well, weekdays, uh, that's the Expected Points podcast and also about, about baseball, the Opener podcast at openerpodcast.com. So again, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.